This episode of Futurismo is brought to you by TradeRev. Change the way you buy and sell cars. TradeRev gives dealers the power to launch trades into one-hour live auctions right from their smartphone. Move your metal faster at TradeRev.com Futurismo. Hey everybody, this is Futurismo, your podcast on tomorrow's cars. I'm Shraz Amad. I'm Hannah Letts. And I'm Sharon Carty. When you talk to enough individuals of a certain era about how they imagine the future of cars, you inevitably come across this 1980s television show. A shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. Knight Rider followed Michael Knight, played by David Hasselhoff in the original series, as he went about fighting crime and solving mysteries. But in the scope of history, the show is much more famous for Knight's sidekick, a high-tech, artificially intelligent car named Kit, short for Knight Industries 2000. Michael, slow down. You're going to crash. I can handle it, Kit. But you're approaching a dangerous curve. Your chance of survival is less than 0.04%. Will you stop with the odds? There's been a lot of famous talking cars that have come out of Hollywood. I mean, obviously, there was a whole Pixar movie series on just talking cars. But Kit stands out in the memories of people who came of age in a time of arcades, Star Wars, and questionable fashion choices. It wasn't just the tech, and it wasn't just the escapades. It was the partnership between Knight and Kit that made the show a hit. Today, we're going to look closely at the relationship between the car and the driver, or maybe, in the future, the passenger. First, we're going to noodle over one of the hardest challenges it will take to get self-driving cars on the road. Um, I felt like there has been uh, insufficient attention to the transfer of control, where you have to hand the control back from the vehicle to the driver or the driver to, to the vehicle. Uh, hey, my name is Adam Emfield. Um, I'm the head of the Nuance Drive Lab, and I'm in charge of the usability and user experience program for Nuance Automotive Division. Nuance is a technology supplier that works with car makers to develop the user experience inside cars, how we actually interact with, say, the entertainment options or safety notifications by using voice, sounds, touch, and other methods, what you'll hear Adam refer to as modalities. Right now, the trendy thing you hear about in the news amounts to porting Amazon Alexa or Apple's Siri voice assistant into the car. But Adam has much bigger dreams. What what are some of the futuristic visions, I guess, you have here that we don't see out in the world today? Uh, so where we see things going is towards, first of all, a more conversational uh, direction where the systems aren't as much about giving it one command and having it respond um, with, uh, with just whatever it thinks is best at the time. But rather moving towards, you can have a dialogue with it. In the car, for example, that you want to you know, get directions to a certain place and find parking near there, and it can help you find the, the ideal parking spot that knows uh, about the environment, you know, knows if, if it's okay to, to walk a, a mile or not, knows about your preferences as an individual, knows if you prefer you know, cheap parking versus uh, uh, close parking, or, you know, garage versus street, if you're willing to parallel park, all those types of things. 
Uh, and it also involves a lot of the, uh, the personalization, the ability to not just do kind of a user-centered uh, design with these things, but being able to, to experience each of these things as a kind of a me-centric uh, experience, one that, that knows who you are as an individual user and can even treat you and maybe your spouse or, or your, your colleagues differently than each other. Adam is an expert in human factor psychology and creating lab experiments to see how people react to different technologies. I wanted to get an inside look at how this process begins and asked Adam to pick a problem and simulate with his actual team how they would go about addressing it. Of course, he went big. How will the car notify riders that they need to take over? If you follow self-driving car-related news at all, you realize that this is a big big problem. What you're about to hear is Adam's team at Nuance ponder solutions to this challenge. Their names are Kara, who's in the office, Jenny, Jeff, and Tegan, who call him by Skype. Let's roll the tape. All right, so uh, what I've done here is I've prepared a prompt for everyone to think about like we would before any meeting. If we put something in the meeting, so here's what we're going to talk about. Let's come up with some ideas to solve a problem. Um, that's all we've done for this idea. So this isn't uh, pre-canned. I'm going to let you try to see what we do to solve a problem here. Um, so about uh, about a, yesterday sometime, I sent the prompt, and we talked about it a little before. It says, uh, you know, a driver is in a semi-autonomous vehicle on a highway in an unfamiliar place. The car is approaching an exit where it needs to hand off control to the driver. How does this interaction happen? What does a driver need to know and when? Consider using multiple modalities and consider what the driver might be doing prior to this handoff. Okay, so right now, that's all they know, um, and it's, it's about brainstorming for the solution here. Um, so first of all, I, I want to just open it up. Does anyone have some ideas for you know, what, what do we need to know or what can we do to make this interaction work? Um, so first thing I was thinking about um, was if if it wasn't an autonomous vehicle, if it was just a normal vehicle, um, I would turn on my turn signal to exit. Um, so that that made me think of that before or after point. If um, if the vehicle is autonomous and it puts on turn signal, should we take control back before the turn signal or after? What do you guys think? I mean, do we have, anyone have an educated guess? I think. That's a great point. I don't know. My my gut says before, um, um, just because it seems like maybe you'd need a little bit of time um, rather than just right when you're pulling off the highway. But I think there's also maybe other factors we could consider there um, that might influence, you know, when the driver takes control. Like, you know, what can the car determine about? what the user is doing, you know, are they sleeping? Are they reading? You know, can we, can we make a, can the car make a a best guess about kind of the, the user's state there, the driver's state? Um, and then, you know, maybe alert accordingly. So if, if somehow they can detect that the user's sleeping, maybe they, there's a message that, that comes, you know, quite a long time before the turn signal, um, you know, to kind of wake the, the passenger up. Assuming that it can detect whether the uh, driver, I think the car needs to know if the driver is in a drivable state. Right, exactly. Uh, or so make the best, yeah. best guess. Yeah, it, it's did they take control of the vehicle, and are they alert enough to uh, drive the car? Well, 
you you both talk about best guess, but um, perhaps there's a big downside to that, right? So if um, it thinks, oh, yeah, you're awake, but you're actually asleep, best guess is not going to work. Um, <laughs> so maybe we need to consider always just alerting in time if they're asleep or awake. Or maybe there's a maybe there are some fallbacks. So maybe you know if best guess is the user is asleep, you know maybe there's a, some sort of alert that goes out or various alerts. Maybe it's you know I, I definitely think to Adam's point earlier in setting this use case up, there should be you know audio so we could use voice, you know, and visual as well. Maybe even some haptic, you know, could be used to maybe vibrate the seat to help wake them up if we if we are guessing they're asleep but maybe it's just that if the best guess is they're asleep then they get um, a warning message if it's a really long drive like you set it up to be um, then maybe it's 15 minutes before you know we should know 15 minutes before the the exit you know maybe it's giving that alert whereas if we think they're awake um, then we still give you know sufficient notice maybe it's just five minutes before which is you know potentially still enough to wake uh, wake somebody up. Um, and of course, there's always a, a, an exit plan, right, a safety. Um, I, I'm guessing that these cars probably pull over to the side of the road if, if they can't, um, you know, safely confirm that, that the, the driver has um, taken control. Is, is that right? Yeah, it's preliminary at this yeah. point. So yeah, it has to be a design. So I was even thinking it misses the exit or it, it keeps going or it pulls over if there's safe uh-huh. areas to pull over. You fall asleep and you end up in New York, Jeff, huh? So it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> um, well, so let me throw a couple of things out here to consider. Because I, I rely a lot on the human factors literature for what we've learned from aircraft and stuff. And there's something called the human in the loop problem. Um, and let me just give a great example. If you're driving and you're on the phone, uh, I'm sure you, you've had this experience where you miss an exit and end up in New York, Jeff. Um, and then uh, you go, oh, you know, oh crap. Uh, and then you get off the phone and, and you realize, okay, well, wait a minute. You know, how, how fast am I going? You know, which, which lane am I? And you kind of have to reorient yourself. Uh, this is going to be exemplified in autonomous vehicles where we have to get the user back up to speed. They have to know where they're at, how fast they're going, things like that. And that all has to be given to the drivers before they end up at the point where they can take control. Otherwise, we're just asking for trouble. We will never know if someone's fully able to take over the car at the moment we want it, they take control over it. There's the, the best guess is, yeah, I don't think you're going to have a seizure when you take the car over. Um, you know, So that's why I, I use that deliberately. But I think it almost has to be a, um, you know, their eye movement is, is good there. It looks like they looked at all the instrument levels. Uh, maybe we even ask them, I, do you think you're going the right speed limit? Um, which might get really annoying to a driver too, but there has to be sort of a, we know they're ready. Say in aviation, we, we actually measure how aware they are of what's going on around them. Before they can take control back over, they have to answer questions often to make sure that they are engaged. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about that for, for this as well, as far as like designing the voice persona and thinking about how different it would be for these semi-autonomous cars versus, you know, like fully functional cars that we might have, I don't know when they're predicting that, 20, 30 years from now. Um, but for these, it seems like the persona would be very different. Um, it needs to convey um, the fact that it, it's more of an assistant. I was kind of thinking, like you said, the kind of the, the flight um, like maybe the flight dispatcher, um, not even a co-pilot, but, you know, somebody who has additional information that you might not have, you know, can do a subset of tasks for you, but but not really even a full co-pilot. Um, so so trying to convey that with with the with the voice piece of this. And like you said, asking questions. So, you know, 
you know, are you sure you're ready? You know, and, and the user can respond and, and confirming that way as well as maybe confirming that their hands are on the steering wheel. Um, so using, you know, every single method that we have available. All right, so I'm actually going to cut us off here uh, for the sake of time, um, but uh, for, for full context for everyone, we are going to be actually designing these use cases types of things in the very near future, so uh, don't lose everything we've talked about here uh, offline uh, when, for other purposes. Uh, I'm likely to ask us to continue to try to solve this problem and come with other ideas for it. One thing Adam said after the mics were turned off that really struck me was that we often think about cars today as tools that can get us from A to B. He sees his job as transforming that relationship from tool to teammate, more collaborative and open than just hitting a button or flipping a switch. But the real bond between man and machine isn't just a scientific challenge to solve. We're humans. Messy, emotional, impulsive, and some of us have a tendency to fall asleep pretty easily. I decided to talk with someone who understood that more visceral connection with cars. I went through a certain phase where I did a lot of long road trips, and I had an old Mustang, <laughs> and every time, um, uh, one of the ugly years, like a 82, and it would stall out in the middle of left turns. It was a crazy car. But I remember the feeling at the end of those trips because my voice would be hoarse from singing the entire time. And I look back on it now and I just think, wow, that was, that was kind of a crazy time. But it was fun. And it was all, all those memories and emotions are tied in with the car itself. That's after the break. MotorWorks Auto Group lists an astounding 85% of vehicles on TradeRev instead of a physical auction. Listen to MotorWorks General Manager Chris Lima and his team explain why using TradeRev is the right move for their company. My name is Chris Lima, and we're here at MotorWorks Automotive Group. We were approached by TradeRev. They said, hey, we want you to try this new thing out. What do you do when you sell 1,200 cars a month and take another six, 700 cars on trade? It's an in-house auction that you guys would shoot the cars at your store. You wouldn't have to worry about the transportation of trucking them there. The fees are much cheaper. We'll come out and shoot and do everything for you, make it a very easy process. When it was introduced to us, we were like, okay, let's at least listen what they have to say. It's been great to be able to have this on-site auction with very little work to liquidate um, our wholesale inventory. We used to uh, send most of our cars to the auction, but now we're probably 85 to 90 percent solely on TradeRev because we've done so well with it. I think TradeRev uh, not only played a part in the growth of our of our business, but certainly in the profitability and the bottom line of our business. Move your metal faster at traderev.com slash futurismo. You're back with Futurismo. 
we're going to shift from left brain to right brain and talk to an expert in emotional artificial intelligence, or how gadgets and gizmos can discern feelings and moods from physical cues like heart rate and facial expressions, something that hasn't really been discussed too broadly in the auto industry. But we know people are thinking about it. What do you, when, when car makers come to you to ask you about your research or ask you about the future, I guess, what, what is your read on what they're, they're wondering or what they're predicting? Uh, well, there's a lot of anxiety, I think, in the industry right now because it's unclear, you know, have we reached peak car ownership? Probably. Do we all know that cars are part of, you know, our climate issues right now or at least bad for the environment? Yes, we know that. And so there's a lot of anxiety around like, well, what can we do to provide value in a new way to to drivers and passengers? And so I think that's, you know, something that is a concern throughout the entire industry is trying to figure that out, both from a business perspective, but also just from a humanity perspective. My name is Pamela Pavlishak, and I'm a design researcher and strategist at Change Sciences. Pamela focuses on the increasingly personal role technology has taken in our lives. One day, she said, cars might know us better at times than our friends and family do. You were saying yesterday you think we'll actually get to a point where machines will be able to know us better than humans do. Machines that have this emotion-detecting layer of artificial intelligence will know things about our emotions that we might not know about ourselves because we're not paying attention to it. We have different levels of emotional intelligence, for sure, that our family members might not know about us because they don't see us in all these different contexts. And so even though it sounds a little cheeky, I do think that machines of all kinds will start to know us differently than maybe other people do. And that's a kind of emotional intelligence that we can use. And so I think, you know, humans and technology have always co-evolved. And I think this could actually go in a positive direction. You were saying earlier that you see, view cars as kind of the, the forefront of emotional AI. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think that one reason the auto industry is interested in emotion AI is for safety. So that's kind of a core mission of the automotive industry. First things first, you have to keep people safe. And a big cause of accidents is stress and anger and sadness. And so being able to have some way of understanding that and responding accordingly is really important and a significant advantage when you're talking about semi-autonomous or autonomous cars. So so you work with... Uh, or at least you, you watch the industry and you see what, what automakers are doing with AI and with emotional intelligence. I guess, what does the field look like today? What are the applications of emotional AI in cars? I think that it's really nascent. So a lot of companies are experimenting with it, trying to understand ways to use it. I think in the U.S., the trend seems to be toward two things, either safety, um, which we already spoke about, or excitement. How can... How can excitement around the driving experience be built up, detected, encouraged? Um, Japanese automakers are taking another approach. 
they're looking at it as a way to build a relationship with a car. I think there's a more of a comfort zone in general. I'm not the first to notice this um, in Japan with care robots, um, you know, any kind of robots, whether it's Paro the Seal or robots that are built to help in customer service organizations like Pepper. Um, and that extends to cars too. And so they're looking at it as a way to develop sort of a reciprocal caring relationship. And I don't know if the two, you know, approaches are going to meet somewhere in between or, or not at this point because the comfort level of people in the U.S. is a little bit less with robots taking on that emotional role and it probably extends to cars, but it's, it's not really clear. What's the next stage of, of AI detecting your emotions, if not by physical cues? Well, I think it could build up long-term profiles. So you could, in fact, have, you know, physical detection that's um, coming from multiple different sources, right? So usually now you just have one or two. You maybe have face and voice or, you know, because most people aren't wearing like a smartwatch. So you can't detect their skin temperature or their pulse rate or anything like that, Um so one direction will be adding more of those cues to better calibrate and understand emotion. I think once um, we learn more about everyone's emotional responses, certainly AI will be able to detect patterns across populations. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank uh-huh. you. So I realized this all sounds a little, let's be honest, creepy. One thing Pamela and I spoke about that didn't make the final cut of our conversation was how advertisers and big corporations could abuse emotional artificial intelligence to manipulate consumers, which, after the spotlight that's been on Facebook and social media this year for its role in influencing public opinion around politics, doesn't seem so far-fetched. But, like most deep, unnerving queries about technology, the question is not if it might happen, but when. Right now, engineers are more concerned with someone falling asleep at the wheel, not whether your car will be something you confide your deepest secrets in. But, hey, never say never. Kit, go to manual, we're stopping. Really? Why? Is there a young lady in the vicinity? How'd you know that? Really, Michael? You're so predictable. Futurismo is brought to you by Automotive News and the Shift Team, which, speaking of, the second issue of Shift Magazine is out today. In this issue, we focus on how all sorts of partnerships are moving the industry forward. Go to autonews.com slash get shift to check that out. And I'm still collecting feedback on the future of, well, Futurismo. We're going to reinvent this show and want you to help. Send any comments to me personally at futurismo at autonews.com. I'm Shiraz Ahmed, and I'll chat with you next time on Futurismo.